Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this community and for what it is that you're doing. And I pray that as we dig in and dive into this uh, new series, I pray that we can reclaim something that I think that we've lost. And that we can become those kind of people once again. That into tomorrow and the next day and the weeks and the months to come, we can be the kind of followers of you that you've originally designed and called us to be. So help us to do that. Uh, Open up our hearts and our minds. Uh, I know sometimes some of what we talk about here at Spark is uncomfortable or challenging, but I pray that we would just welcome those moments of tension as moments of potential growth, where we get to become more and more in alignment with you and who you are. And we pray this in your name. Amen. On September 18th, 2015, the International Criminal Court, also known as the ICC, issued an unprecedented arrest warrant for Ahmed Al-Faki Al-Mahdi. They indicted him on war crimes. On September 26 of 2015, he was surrendered to the ICC by the authorities of Niger and was sent to the ICC detention center in the Netherlands. Now, what made this arrest the first of its kind was threefold. First was the fact that al-Mahdi was not arrested for genocide, for torture, or any of the other atrocities that are often associated with crimes against humanity. His crimes were of a different sort. Three and a half years earlier, in January 2012, a civil war broke out between the state government of Mali and independent Islamic groups Ansardin and Al-Qaeda. By April of 2012, the Islamic militias had gained control and took the Malian city of Timbuktu. Ansardin and Al-Qaeda imposed religious and political edicts on the territory of Timbuktu and its people. They installed Islamic tribunals, Islamic police forces, a media commission, and a morality brigade established to uphold virtue and prevent vice. But again, none of these acts prompted the arrest of al-Mahdi. Rather, it was what began in June of 2012, when a series of attacks would be made in Timbuktu for one full year, not against its people, but against its monuments. Over nine buildings and their contents would be destroyed, two of them listed by the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, otherwise known as UNESCO, as World Heritage Sites. The war crimes that al-Mahdi was being charged with, what the ICC had never charged anyone previously before, was a crime against a people's culture, against their monuments, which was in essence a crime against their history, their narratives, their stories. As Gus Casely Hayford says in his TED Talk, The Powerful Stories That Shaped Africa, this wasn't vandalism. These weren't thoughtless acts. Over the course of 2012, they engaged in a systematic campaign to destroy Mali's cultural heritage. This was a deeply considered waging of war in the most powerful way that could be envisaged, in destroying narrative, in destroying stories. The attempted destruction of nine shrines, the central mosque, and perhaps as many as 4,000 manuscripts was a considered act. 
They understood the power of narrative to hold communities together. And they conversely understood that in destroying stories, they hoped that they would destroy a people. Now, not only did the Islamist militants believe that, but now so does the ICC. And their indictment proceedings may be ushering in a brand new era of war crimes prosecution, not simply against people's physical bodies, which is and will continue to be atrocious, but now against the violation of people's stories, history, narratives, and culture, which is to say against those people themselves. This is an amazing story to me, a truly incredible story. War crimes, atrocities, crimes against humanity, we often think of those brutal, violent acts, and we should cry out against those, absolutely. But that, in 2012, something has shifted with the International Criminal Court. To believe now, maybe perhaps as we've always believed, but now to make it judiciary practice, that to destroy somebody's story, to destroy their narrative, to destroy their history, to destroy their culture, is in essence to destroy them. Which brings me to my very first point, the thing that I'd like to open up with, the thing that I think is most important as we begin this particular series and why it's so central to our faith and our understanding of our identity. Stories are the foundation of a people's identity. Stories are the foundation of a people's meaning and sense of purpose. We often think of stories as things that we tell during bedtime. We often think of stories as things that we make up, fabricate to entertain ourselves or perhaps to amuse ourselves when we have nothing else to do. But that's not the fundamental essence of what a story is. A story is where you came from. Who are you? How did you get here? Why are you here? And for what purpose do you live? What are you doing in this world? Where is the world going? All of those things are stories, and all of those things shape our identity, our meaning, and our purpose. Now, throughout history, people have known and understood this. There are certain things that we take in, that we understand, that we cogitate upon, that help us define who we are, answer life's most fundamental questions. Who are we? What are we doing here? In our particular day and age, consumerism, capitalism, purchasing, all of these kinds of things, what you can make, if you can disrupt something, if you can buy something, if you can own something, these are the things that often capitalize our attention on what it means for us. And let me just say that technology and science is going to continue to advance, and Spark is always going to be a place where we celebrate those advancements. We have amazing people in science and technology in our congregation, people in the medical fields, and we applaud very, very much so what they are doing and what our society is doing in advancing those causes. They're making life better. We believe that they are a gift from God, wonderful things. But here's my contention today. All of those things, the phones that you have, the technologies that we embrace the things that move us forward are not sustainable when it comes to the most important, core, central yearning of the human soul, which is, who am I? What am I doing here? These things will ultimately fail. These things fall short. And as much as we have been seduced into believing that owning, grabbing, striving, gaining, Producing, overproducing 
helps to substantiate our identities and our purpose and our meaning. It is my contention. I believe many of us already know this instinctively. They fail. They don't live up. In addition, many of us, for many years, have been asking some serious questions about faith. We've been asking questions about what has been the evolution of Christianity, especially in recent years. Many of us have been involved with conversations about, did you hear so-and-so say, can you believe such-and-such published this particular statement? Oh my goodness, look who's in the news again. Wait a second, my church actually believes what? We've been going through this quite a bit over many, many years, actually. People call this a deconstruction. People call this a new reformation. A lot of this is actually catalyzed because of the technologies that we have. And these questions are good. We are asking deeper, more profound questions that ground us in values and purpose and meaning and not just in doctrines and things that used to sustain faith for a period of time. But I'm going to suggest we need to go one step further. Because oftentimes the response to these particular crises is to simply flip the switch or to go along the other side. Well, if they believe that, that must be wrong. Therefore, I'm going to believe this. Um, One of my critiques of some of the recent responses to statements that have been published about particular Christian faiths is that the response has been to publish alternative statements. Now, I'm not against all those. We can do that. Absolutely. That's all part of our prerogative as people. But here's my critique. Does that make us any different? And does that actually dig us deeper into the roots of who we are and change and shift the conversation? I'm going to suggest to you that if you're feeling at all, or if any of your friends are feeling, family, people are feeling that there is a crisis within Christianity, perhaps there's a crisis not just within the things that we believe. I believe or would suggest to you that perhaps we are suffering from a crisis of story. The reason why we publish statements of belief, the reason why we publish more things about, well, since they believe this, I'm going to say this, and this is wrong, and this is right, is because we're no longer engaged in the storytelling and the story-promulgating culture that is so rooted and grounded in our faith, starting in the book of Genesis. Perhaps poetically, ironically, however you want to say it, October 31st, my friends, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Reformation is, somewhere in the early 1500s, there was one specific church called the Catholic Church, lowercase c, because Catholic just simply meant universal church. Everybody followed that particular denomination, even though we can't really call it a denomination. And With the dawning of the printing press and the learning of the scriptures in new ways, people started asking deeper, more profound, significant questions about the practices of the Catholic Church. And one specific guy, a monk named Martin Luther, nailed famously now 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. These theses were to say, you know what, the Catholic Church, again, see universal, everybody practices this, the Catholic Church says this about indulgences and sin and purgatory and And I'm going to suggest to you, to anybody who is interested in having a conversation, that this is actually how we should be thinking about it. And those 95 theses, that act launched into Western culture what is now known as the Reformation. The Reformation was so influential that the vast majority of evangelical Christianity, part of our roots, many of us come from that, was initiated and has essentially our grounding in the Reformation which is why many of us are Protestants, because we protested against the Catholic Church. And some people like to quip, we've been protesting ever since, which is why there's like thousands of Protestant denominations. Now, 
that history is fascinating and intricate, and by the way, nuanced. There's a lot of nuance to this history, and I don't want to go into all of that history, and we actually have wonderful conversations about Catholic practices and Protestant practices. For those of you who don't know, and I don't think he minds me outing him in public, but Pastor Mark, who's one of our pastors here, is a practicing Catholic, and we've been celebrating the things and the traditions that he is attempting to influence us, and he and I have wonderful conversations about the balance and the tensions and and the poles between our different faith traditions, and we want to honor each other in that particular way. So my point in bringing this up is not to say whether or not the Reformation is good or bad. I'm just simply saying that even during that particular time, approximately 400, 300 years after the creeds and Constantine in the 300s, and then pushing again another 500 years into our space, we have inherited and continue to practice this very same thing. We nail theses. This is what we do. This is what we believe. This is what we affirm. These are our doctrines. And when you go to virtually any, um, I have to be careful because, I, again, I don't want to sound demeaning, but when you go to any particular church site, one of the first things that is stated on the about page is, we believe this about the Bible, we believe this about God, we believe this about Jesus, we believe this about the virgin birth. We, and that is fundamentally the grounding point for your identity, your faith. Not story points, not narrative theological doctrines. And what I'd like to do today is just simply ask the question, is that the most core and central part of our faith? I want to say clearly, lest anybody misunderstand, I am not against having statements of faith. There's going to be plenty of discussions about what those mean, and I don't want to deprecate or demean anybody who holds to particular things that are listed in a statement of faith. So I want to say that clear. What I do also want to say is, simply ask the question, is that what is most core and central to our faith identity? A statement of faith. And I'm going to suggest to you, and I'm going to challenge us as a congregation to consider, statements of faith like these are wonderful to discuss and debate and evolve and perpetuate. But our story begins like this. Let me tell you a story about my father, who is in a far-off land, who heard this mysterious call and then traveled 1,200 miles across the desert, up through the Mesopotamian down through a city called Haran. He has this mythical story about him, about how he crushed and smashed idols. And that was why God chose him, because he was the idol smasher. My father was a wandering Aramean. And the reason why we wander still to this day is because that's our story. Story, my friends, is what I see as the framework and the lens by which we understand our faith at its most core and central place. There are things you're going to say, but wait a second, aren't there things like the Ten Commandments? And aren't, those, aren't there do's and don'ts? Doesn't Paul list things of virtues and vices and affirmations and creeds? Yes. Those don't go away. Again, I'm not saying that those things are bad. What I am saying is that all of those pieces of the puzzle are better framed when you understand This is about a story. 
A story that was written, a story that was told, a story that was passed down, and a story that we are now expected to continue to live. Secondarily to that are things that we are to believe. But first and foremost is a story that we are to live. So point number one, stories are the foundations of people's identity, meaning, and purpose. And if we don't know who we are, or if there is a crisis about what is this faith, I'm going to suggest that we just simply go back to in the beginning, once upon a time. Point number two, in story, and this is people who theorize about story talk about this all the time. In story, what is most important is meaning, not facts. And here's where I might get a little bit uncomfortable for some of you. In story, the most important central piece of story is meaning, not facts. Now, some of you are going to say, well, that sounds like Mark Twain's never let the truth get in the way of a good story, which is kind of a theme for several of the people here I won't name. Anyway, of course, people are very good at elaborating and being um, exaggerated in, in particular stories. But theorists about, around stories, and especially people who think about the Bible as a story, don't simply say that you elaborate or you try to get fabricating different things. No, what they're saying is this. Does the story cohere with reality? Does the story that I'm telling actually make sense to my lived experience? The facts can absolutely be there, but the facts are not the point. This is not some sort of police report that we're just trying to get all the facts and the details. The question is, does this story actually cohere with reality? I cannot think of a better organization to communicate this than Pixar. No question, this is one of their first movies that they produced, Toy Story. When you watch Toy Story, do you get distracted by the fact that toys are sentient beings and they are having conversations and they're so conscious they know when a human being walks into the room, they play dead? I mean, is that what you're... No, no, no. If that's the real thing. If you get caught up in, uh, I don't think this is really true. You miss the whole point of the story. The story is about the innocence of a child's imagination and the power of attachment, and you use story to communicate that. What about Monsters, Inc.? Is the whole point to communicate to your children, well, you know, actually that door leads to some sort of parallel universe, and when the monsters go in, they're actually very friendly, but then when they come out, is that what you do with your children? No. You watch the story, you watch the movie, because this is about facing your fears. It's about turning your fears into friends. It's about having a relationship with that part of you that is, is afraid. And you do that through the, through the genre of story. Inside Out, brilliant movie. Now, here's a perfect example. When you talk to psychologists and neurobiologists, they will tell you that this movie is actually quite inaccurate. When you do the brain science and you think about how all this works, there isn't this thing in your brain called joy and anger. There are actually portions of your brain that interact with one another in some sort of conglomerate way that produces all of these reactions and responses in conjunction with like an intersubjective relationship with a lot of the people. That's what's going on in, in, in your brain. So the movie, from an accuracy standpoint, is probably not hitting it very well. But who cares? The point of that story is to say your mind has a mind of its own. And we're all trying to figure out and navigate what does that mind do and how do we relate to that mind. And then one of my wife's favorite movies, Wally. 
Sometimes the question can be, do robots actually have intelligence and can they be conscious, sentient, emotional beings? You know, do we get caught up in the science? And that's a wonderful, beautiful debate. But the, the actual facts of that story really not that important. What's most important is what does this story teach us about what it means to be human? In the genre of story, what is most important is meaning, not facts. Now, I'm going to get myself into trouble here because there are two stories in the Bible that I think fall into this trap frequently. Many of you know the Jonah story. It's very famous, right? And there's these stories that are told about children going to their teachers and say, I believe that God could totally make a man live in the belly of a fish for three days. And I can argue with you scientifically. And, and then you have these debates. And then some people throw out the story altogether because, oh, that is such a ridiculous idea that, that, that I've got all the scientific facts about the Bible. I hear so much about that around the story of Jonah. It grieves me because whether you believe in that fact or not, that is not the reason why somebody wrote Jonah. In fact, for those of you who physically, literally believe that, you can also believe the story. And for those of you who think that this was much more mythological or metaphorical, you too can believe the story. Here's the story. A prophet who was told by God to go to people who have murdered his own family, preach to them so that they can repent. Because this God is that kind, that generous, that loving. And about how the prophet says, basically gives the middle finger to God and says, no way. You want me to go to them? Do you know what they did to us? This is this tension about how loving is this God? And think about your greatest enemy. And think about God telling you, go to them. Because my love, my loving kindness, and my grace is also for them. And ask yourself the question, what emotions rise up in you? That's the story. And by the time Jonah actually gets to Nineveh, and they actually do repent, Jonah doesn't even say to them, repent. He can't even get those words out. He just says, God's going to destroy this place. Like, that's his sermon. Can you imagine? Welcome to Spark, everybody. God's going to destroy you. Have a wonderful day. Right. If that was the sermon, that's his entire sermon. And the Ninevites hear, they repent, the cows repent. And Jonah goes, I knew it. I knew you were a kind and gracious God. That's the story of Jonah. The fish shows up in two verses, maybe two verses of the four chapters. So again, my point is not to dismantle whether or not the facts of the story are true. My point is to simply say, story was written so that the meaning of the story is prominent, prior, uh, prioritized. That is what is most important. Same thing with the book of Job. The book of Job is all about the question of what is actually happening in the heavenlies, and we come up with all sorts of theologies about the devil and about God and how, about that, how they argued. The Job is this brilliant brilliant story about why do good people suffer? And the answer is, there is no answer. And they go through 42 chapters of no answer. Well, maybe it was this. Nope. Well, maybe it was this. Nope. Maybe it was this. Nope. It's all about suffering and pain. And how do you relate to the heavenlies? How do you relate to supernatural beings? How do you relate to God in the midst of that? The most important thing about stories is meaning, not facts.
There's so many more things I want to say, but we'll have to keep moving on. Stories, number three, stories are events in context. And this is perhaps one of the most important things about why we should read our story, our biblical narrative, within the context of story. Let me ask you a couple questions. Anybody recognize this phrase? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. From? Now question. That's a great opening line. What's the question that happens if I just show you that line? What happens next? Tell me more. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, if that was just the line, if that was just the thing, if that was the statement of belief, this is really boring. But the question is, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far, wait, 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 wait. Tell me more. It was a dark and stormy night. That's for Daniel. And for Lindsay, if she's here. From a wrinkle in time. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. There's a child that doesn't grow up? What does that tell me more? The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play, so we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. That's for uh, Dave and Kathy. These opening lines are not statements, but beginnings to sequence, context, more that is coming. It's very much like instructions on making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. First you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this. And then after the peanut butter and jelly sandwich is eaten, it's the question of what comes next? Stories are events in context and sequence. And part of the reason why we have so much trouble reading our Bibles is because we pull those things out and we say, well, that is what is true. And the Bible was written to be one long Grand narrative from garden to garden, event after event, sequence after sequence for those of you who have taken garden to garden. And one of the reasons why Daniel's class is so brilliant is because it takes that story that we've been reading and puts it in this larger context of events and sequence. Well, wait a second. And I've heard Danielle talk about this frequently. When you get to Matthew, you have a whole bunch of questions. Where do the Romans come from? What is synagogue? Why is your Bible written in Greek? There's a whole bunch of questions that emerge because the story are events in context, in sequence. Something came before that. Something is coming after it. And I want to read this particular chapter, this particular verse, this particular book within the context of that sequence. Story and understanding story, friends, in my mind, is brilliant. It's the foundation of our identity. It gives us meaning and purpose. It's what frames the biggest questions in life. It helps us to embrace meaning and not get distracted with all the facts. And they are events in sequence, in context. They beg the question, tell me more. What comes next? And once you understand the Bible is actually a story or understand it through that particular frame, it now makes sense why our ancestors, our scribes, The people long, long ago spent hours and hours of their lives to document, copy, and pass down these stories because they were significant to their identity. They gave those people a deep sense of meaning in everything that they did, and they passed it on to people because they knew that you were the next chapter in that story. You were going to fulfill what was happening in that story. So my friends, I have this question that I'd like to ask, which is simply this. 
So what do you believe? This is going to be a question that I'm sure that you'll be asked frequently. If you are part of a faith community, Spark has talked about this a little bit, so you guys don't have a statement of faith on your website, so what do you believe? I'd like to give you a little bit of a handhold. Perhaps not a list, not a chart, not an enumerated list of things that we believe, but perhaps a little bit of a trailer that sounds or looks a little bit like this. the next time you get asked the question, so what do you believe? You get to answer the question, well, once upon a time, my father was a wandering Aramean. In the beginning, God created, and he spoke. This is what we believe. We believe in that story. I'd like to close by asking the question, so what happened to Mahdi? Remember, I told you, that the ICC arrest and indictment of al-Mahdi was unprecedented for three reasons. 
The first was being the kind of charges that were against him. The war crimes related to attacking religious buildings or historical monuments. The second reason was that this was the first time an Islamist militant was brought to trial by the ICC, arising from the situation in Mali. But the third was that this was also the first time the ICC had an individual plead guilty, apologize, and receive a reduced sentence because of his message to the world. Al-Makhdi received nine years instead of the 30 that he was supposed to receive because at his trial, he testified, I am really sorry. I am really remorseful. And I regret all the damage that my actions have caused. I would like to give a piece of advice to all Muslims in the world not to get involved in the same acts I got involved in because they are not going to lead to any good for humanity. This is what made this arrest and this trial unprecedented for the ICC. In other words, the story doesn't just end with some sort of judiciary finally getting justice over somebody who did evil. The story often ends there. We finally got the bad guy and we put him in jail. But this story continued. And this story begs the question, if this person gave that kind of testimony, what comes next? What is the next chapter in that movement? What is the next chapter in that story? And what are kind of the inhibitions that we have, the prejudices that we might have against Muslims? And to hear something like this, does that do damage to our biases and our prejudices? Where we can say, maybe there's another chapter in my life and how I think. So I'd like to just simply leave you with the question, what is the next chapter in our story? And what role will you play in that next chapter? And I hope that we have begun this series, this is our story, by simply changing the frame of reference from believing certain doctrines not as central, but to believing our identity as a story, as a descendant of this wandering Aramean. And that in this place and in this time and in our congregation, we get to write whatever that next chapter is. These stories were passed down to us, not because they just wanted to make sure that they got the facts correct. These stories were passed down to us because our ancestors believed that the descendants of them, their descendants, would carry on this good news into this new world, into whatever this world would be. And I pray and I hope that we take up that mantle as well. Last week's message by Daniel was a phenomenal message about opening those doors, about being the kind of community that is on the edge of the inside. The reason why we can tell that story is because we know what it's like to be on the edge. Many of us know what that feels like. If the most important thing about our church was, well, this is what we believe and this is what we believe, there is only insiders and outsiders. But what she talked about last week is helping to bridge that gap and bringing more people on the inside. And the only way that can happen is if we begin to reframe our identity as people who live that story. So my friends, there's your introduction to this series over the next several weeks where we're going to go through specific stories in the Bible and ask ourselves a question, what is our story? 
Not just the things that have happened, but what do those events tell us about who we are and how we are to live? And I hope you'll join us and be along for the amazing ride of writing these chapters.